Welcome to Bank of Singapore Unplugged. Hello, I'm Mansur Mohideen, Chief Economist of Bank of Singapore. And I'm delighted that you're able to join us today for our second investment roundtable, a forum where we bring experts from around the world to discuss key themes in financial markets. Now, for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve, the world's most important central bank. We've entitled today's session, View from the Top, and that's because we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve with Dr. William Dudley. For almost a decade after the 2008 global financial crisis, Dr. Dudley held senior positions at the very apex of the Federal Reserve system. For example, from 2009 until 2018, Dr. Dudley was the president and the CEO of the New York Federal Reserve, and at the same time, he was the vice chair and a permanent voter on the Fed's top decision-making body, the Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC. Now, it even gets even better than this, because before Dr. Dudley joined the New York Fed in 2007, he had a very illustrious career on Wall Street, including spending more than two decades at Goldman Sachs, where he rose to become a partner and chief US economist. So without any more further delays, let's bring in Dr. Dudley now. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm great. Great to be here. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. So, a little bit, we've got a whole bunch of questions I've got to ask you for the next 30 minutes or so. So, let's just, just dive into it. So, we know that from December last year, Bill, the uh, Fed started to uh, print money at the rate of $120 billion a month to buy bonds. And at the same time, it kept its federal funds interest rate at rock bottom levels of between zero and a quarter percent to support the US economy's recovery from the pandemic. But now the Fed is indicating that it wants to start tapering its quantitative easing, a decision that could have uh, strong uh, consequences for global financial markets. So Bill, let's start off. Can you just tell us how you see the Fed perceiving the recovery now, and particularly its focus on restoring jobs that were lost during the pandemic? Well, the Federal Reserve set uh, two standards for beginning the tapering process that they would have made substantial progress towards their goals of 2% inflation and maximum sustainable employment. In other words, whittling away uh, the, 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 the amount of people that were unemployed uh, following the pandemic. Um, the Fed has judged that they've made substantial progress. And because they've made substantial progress, it's highly likely that they're going to start the tapering process at the next uh, FOMC meeting, which is in November. Thanks very much, Bill, for that. Now, if you take, uh, if you move to uh, inflation, then now the Fed, uh, Ch Chairman Powell at the Fed's annual symposium at Jackson Hole in August a few weeks ago, he did spend a considerable amount of time on inflation, and he went into great detail on why the central bank believes that the recent increase in inflation as the US economy reopens will likely only be temporary. But since April, Bill, as we know, inflation has been running above the Fed's 2% target. Now, if inflation continues to be above the Fed's 2% target for the next few months, do you think the Fed will continue to stick to its view that these increases in prices are only going to be transitory? Well, the most likely answer is, 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 is yes, they'll, they'll continue to view it as transitory, especially if they view the source of the price pressures is due to things like supply chain disruptions uh, that the Fed will view as likely to be solved over time and, and temporary. 
Uh, Chairman uh, Powell, in his uh, Jackson Hole remarks, talked about the uh, strength in durable goods prices in the U.S., and that is one factor which was causing inflation to be higher currently. And he pointed out that that was extremely unusual uh, by U.S. Uh, standards. Over the last 25 years prior to this last year, durable goods prices had fallen over that entire 25-year period, not just in the entire period, but in each and every single year. And this was his way of saying that what we're seeing in terms of inflation pressures look to be due to the change in demand uh, due to the pandemic uh, and the fact that we've opened up the economy quite rapidly. And so we're seeing a lot of you know, frictional costs that will ultimately be resolved over the medium term. So the Fed's view is very much it's, it's, it's likely to be transitory. And you can see that in the, the Fed's summary of economic projections, where they think inflation is going over the next few years. They see inflation quite a bit lower in 2022 than 2021, and even falling further in 23 and 24. So they definitely are of the view that you know, the inflation pressures we're seeing today are not going to be uh, long-lasting. Whether they're right or not remains to be seen, of course. Sure, no, thanks very much, Bill, for that. So if we put together the Fed's views on growth, employment, and inflation, then as you said earlier, do you think there's a good chance then the Fed will start tapering its quantitative easing as early as the next meeting in November, Bill? Yes, I think, that's, uh, I think that was very well telegraphed at, at this last uh, Pierre Powell press conference. He said some people are already there and he basically said that uh, you know things would have to change pretty dramatically for the Fed not to start tapering in November. They also made it very clear that the tapering process is likely to proceed you know relatively quickly, uh, 10 billion a month for uh, treasuries, 5 billion a month for agency mortgage-backed securities, that, which means the whole tapering process will be completed by the middle of 2022. Thanks, Bill, for that. So that's a, a, a rather faster process of tapering compared to what we saw in 2013 then. Do you think that the decision to announce tapering, uh, say if it happens at the November FMC meeting, do you think that's then going to upset financial markets, cause a taper tantrum as we saw in 2013? Or do you think the Fed have already given investors ample warning already? Well, they're very you know, aware of the taper tantrum uh, problem, and so they've been doing everything possible to avoid it by you know, gradually getting the idea of tapering into the marketplace. So, you know, when they do actually announce it in November, it shouldn't be a, be a surprise to market participants. So it would be a bit surprising if it actually caused a taper tantrum. The other thing I think they made it very clear is that, that the tapering process uh, doesn't necessarily foreshadow an early liftoff in terms of raising short-term interest rates. Uh, Chair Powell in his press conference made it very clear that while they made a lot of progress uh, towards their goal, goals, and that's why they can start the taper, the test for actually lifting off, raising short-term interest rates, was far more stringent, and the notion is that they're quite a bit farther away from that point. You can see that in terms of the FMC participants. They're quite divided about when the liftoff would actually take place. Uh, there's 18 participants on the Federal Open Market Committee currently. Nine have the, the liftoff starting in the second half of 22. Uh, eight have it in 23, and one person has it in 2024. So, I think they don't have a good sense of how long is it going to take them to actually achieve the three conditions that they need to see for liftoff. One, they get to full employment and they're confident they're, they're at full employment. Two, they're at 2% inflation. That's obviously a test that's going to be met uh, probably pretty easily. But three, that they're confident that inflation is going to stay above 2% for some time in the future. That's a view that the inflation dynamics are not just transitory, that they're actually more persistent. So it's going to take a while, I think, to convince the Fed that it's time to actually lift off. 
the fact that is that the market knows the, the Fed's game plan this time. They didn't know the Fed's game plan back in 2013 when we had the taper tantrum. And so I think that the fact that there's a well-established template that the Federal Reserve has all already laid out, and the fact that the Fed is following that template quite uh, rigorously uh, should reduce the risk of a taper tantrum quite significantly. The big risk, I think, for the markets is if the inflation news just turns out to be higher for longer and more persistent. And if the high inflation news, if that were to cause an unanchoring of inflation expectations, then I think people would start to worry that the Federal Reserve is going to have to go earlier and they're going to have to raise short-term interest rates by more. And in that case, you, get, you would get a taper tantrum, but not because the markets were just reacting to the taper, but because people were starting to reprice how much interest rates hike we were likely to get you know, as we look out to, into 2023 and 2024. That's a very interesting point, Bill, because I have to say a lot of our clients are worried about inflation. So a lot of our clients will be, say, entrepreneurs, business owners who are seeing inflation in their own input prices and are fearful that inflation will become entrenched, as you say, either in inflation expectations or because uh, employers have to uh, increase wages to attract workers. So if you just delve on this in a bit more detail, Bill, what do you think are the sort of key data that we need to be watching in terms of, say, employment, inflation over the next few months to see whether the Fed will stick to this current time frame of announcing tapering, say, in November, finishing at the middle of next year, or whether the Fed becomes more hawkish and decides to bring forward its rate hikes. If you can just elaborate here, Bill, for us. Well, I think there are two important issues. Number one is how tight is the U.S. labor market? On one hand, you have an unemployment rate of 5.2%, which is well above where you were in February 2020 when the unemployment rate was 3.5%. So that suggests there's quite a bit of slack. Uh, You're still 5 million plus workers short of where you were in February 2020, which suggests that you have quite a bit of labor market slack. But on the other hand, if you look at uh, the number of job openings in the U.S., they're at an all-time record high, and businesses are reporting a hard time uh, finding workers. The fact is a lot of people have just dropped out of the labor force. A lot of people have retired early. Uh, women in particular are, have dropped out of the labor force as they need to take care of their, their children when schools haven't been uh, in, in session. So the Fed is really grappling with this issue of how much slack do we really have in the U.S. labor market. So that's going to be very, very important. And the thing I think you need to be focusing on is what happens to wages? What happens to the wage trend? If wages start to accelerate in a meaningful way, that will tell the Fed that the labor market is tighter than they thought and they might have to go a little bit earlier. The second thing to focus on is something that you've already alluded to is inflation expectations. The Fed is up to now has been pretty happy about how inflation expectations have evolved. Inflation expectations have drifted up a little bit over the last six months, but only to around the 2% inflation target that the Federal Reserve has. So they're actually happy about that. Inflation expectations previously had been a little bit too low uh, for the Fed's uh, liking, and now they're very close to the Fed's 2% inflation objective. But if inflation expectations continue to go up from here, if, it, if businesses and households start to react to you know, persistent inflation pressures above 2% by raising their, their idea of where inflation is going to be in the longer run, that would cause inflation to become less well anchored. And I think that would also cause the Fed to be uh, have a lot of more concern. So Bill, then if we take what you said so far about the timeline for tapering, if we should expect an announcement as early as November now, and the Fed think that tapering will finish in the middle of next year, so uh, the Fed will be uh, ending its quantitative easing in the middle of next year. And if uh, inflation does prove to be transitory and consumer price increases begin to moderate next year 
As you said, the FOMC's new forecasts from the September meeting suggest that we could have core inflation as high as 3.7% this year, but then down towards the Fed's 2% target next year. So if all of that plays out benignly then, when do you think the Fed will start to consider raising interest rates? Is it something that we should really have to wait until 2023 rather than then at the end of 2022, for example? I think it's really hard to say at this point. We don't know how much slack there is in the U.S. labor market. We don't have any great experience about how economies recover from pandemics. Uh, we don't know how inflation expectations are, are going to react to higher inflation right now. So there's just a lot of different wild cards in the outlook that make it very unclear when, when these three conditions that the Fed has set out are actually going to be satisfied. Um, I think that people shouldn't overinvest in the dot plot and where Fed officials think the Fed is going to lift off. Uh, I think the outlook, you know, looking out into 2022, 2023 is highly uncertain. And so when we actually arrive at the point that we're at full employment and, you know, the Fed's confident that inflation is going to be above 2% in the future, I think, it, I think it's really hard to say when that's going to arrive. I think it will arrive a lot more quickly than it did following the great financial crisis because you don't have the kinds of headwinds that you had back then. When people you know, came out of the great financial crisis, there was a huge mortgage debt overhang where the value of their homes was worth less than the mortgage debt they had against the, a lot of their properties. Uh, we're coming out of this uh, downturn with a lot of fiscal stimulus. Uh, a lot of people have saved the money that they've gotten from the federal government. Uh, people's balance sheets are generally in pretty good shape. So I think it's going to be a very different kind of recovery. One other big wild card is what happens to fiscal policy. Uh, does the Biden administration get what they're seeking in terms of an infrastructure spending bill and another big bill uh, to provide support to low and moderate income households? If they get those that, that legislation passed, then fiscal policy will be more stimulative. They'll push the economy to full employment more quickly and the Federal Reserve will have to act. Another important wild card in all of this is the Fed's own change in their monetary policy regime. Before they st used to start to tighten, before the, the economy got to full employment, their goal was to essentially arrive at a neutral monetary policy about the same time that the economy arrived at 2% inflation and full employment, sort of try to get us to generate a soft landing. And they got pretty close to that in, you know, in, in January and February of 2020. This time, though, they've, they've changed their regime. Uh, not only have they said that they're trying to achieve 2% inflation on average, so that means they'll accept an overshoot of inflation to the upside to offset the undershoots of inflation they had last time. But they've also said they're not going to actually tighten monetary policy at all until they're actually at their 2% inflation objective. They're confident they're going to go above it and they're at full employment. So the Fed isn't even starting to raise short-term interest rates until the time where monetary policy actually needs to be made tight. So this, I think, is very, very important because of what it suggests to me is that when the Federal Reserve starts to tighten monetary policy, they're going to be a bit late. They're going to be a bit behind the curve. Inflation is going to go above 2%. The unemployment rate is going to fall below full employment. And what that means is the Federal Reserve is going to have to tighten by more because they need to make policy tight. They're going to have to tighten by more because inflation is going to be above 2% rather than just at 2%. And so I think that's going to be a, a much more dramatic swing in the interest rate cycle than we're used to. Now, what's interesting, that's not priced into markets at all. If you look at the Eurodollar futures market, the Eurodollar futures market is pricing in a peak in short-term rates of around one and three quarters to 2%, which is quite uh, puzzling. Because if you look at the Federal Reserve's own forecast, they think the neutral short-term rate is around two to 
So they think neutral is above what's priced into markets currently, looking out to 2023, 24, and 25. So I think there's something's going to have to give here. Uh, either the Fed's right or the markets are right, but uh, something's going to have to give in terms of these expectations. Yeah, thanks very much, Bill, for that. It does seem that there is a disconnect between what the markets are anticipating and what the Federal Reserve is, at least in terms of its forecasts, is projecting. Now, if you just go back one step, if you then take the Fed's view, and let's say the Fed's view is correct, that the Fed can slowly taper and finish its money printing by the middle of next year, and then, for example, doesn't start raising rates until 2023. But we've seen from the dot plot, the Fed's, the medium forecast is for three hikes in 2023, and I believe another three hikes again in 2024. And as you said, that the Fed's long-run forecast for the Fed funds rate is between 2 and 3%, around 2.5%. The financial markets, as you've noted, are not pricing in so much of uh, interest rate hikes. Now, is it because the financial markets are worried that if the Fed raises interest rates, it may slow growth too quickly again, and so that the Fed won't be able to achieve its interest rate projections? Or is it, do you think, because financial markets have become too complacent and that they have become lulled into this false sense of security that interest rates will stay low forever for a whole range of, say, structural reasons like demographics, globalization, technology? What do you think is really going on here, Bill, in terms of these longer run projections? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, the Fed's forecast are modal forecasts and the market's forecast takes into account all the possible outcomes. And I think the market sort of sees that the skew of the distribution is to the downside, that you know something comes along that disrupts growth. The Federal Reserve then has to ease. You're back at the zero lower bound. You're buying securities again. So there's always some prob probability of that as, as you go along. The, the Fed's forecasts are a modal forecast. They, that, that's what the Fed thinks is most likely. So that accounts, I think, for some of the, the difference. The other thing that I think accounts for the difference is I think the market is putting too much weight on the last last cycle. I think they're looking at what happened following the great financial crisis. You know, the Fed didn't tighten very much. It was a very slow, evolved, long, long evolved process. Uh, there was more slack in the labor market than what the, the Fed and, and market participants thought. And so interest rates stayed much lower for longer than what anybody anticipated. But I think, you know, you don't want to ever fight the last war when you're when you're an investor. This is going to be very different because the causes of this economic downturn, the pandemic, are very different than the causes of the last downturn that occurred following the great financial crisis. And I think the fiscal situation is quite different. Back in 2011, 2012, fiscal policy turned quite restrictive. And so the Federal Reserve was essentially the only game in town to provide support to the economy. Now it seems like the the orthodoxy on fiscal policy is quite different. Uh, the fiscal lever is more available. I think the big issue in the U.S. on the fiscal policy is not whether people don't think it could be used. I think people think it could be used. I think the real question is whether the politics will allow it to be used because there's such a divide between the Democrats and the Republicans. That's very helpful, Bill. So I want to ask you about the politics in a moment and how that could affect Federal Reserve's policies. Before I can get, get on to the politics, Bill, um, you said that the markets may be misplaced in comparing the current or sorry, future rate tightening cycle of the Fed to what happened in the last decade. As you said, the Fed was quite slow in tightening policy for all kinds of reasons. It had one hike in 2015, one hike in 2016, then roughly one hike every quarter in 2017 and 18. So for a pretty slow pace of tightening. If you think that's the wrong comparison, Bill, 
do you think there's an earlier rate tightening cycle by the Fed that we should be looking at, say, from the 80s or from the 90s instead, Bill? Well, I think the interesting rate hiking cycle prior to that was 2004 to 2006, where the Fed started at a 1% federal funds rate and literally tightened every meeting for, I think, 17 meetings in a row. They took the federal funds rate from 1% to 5 and a quarter percent, tightening every meeting uh, in a row. So that's, that's now raising interest rates 2 percentage points a year, much, much faster than anyone imagines could happen in this, in this case. Another thing that's interesting about this Fed's own summary of economic projections in terms of their interest rate projections, they have the unemployment rate falling below full employment in 2022. Despite that, they tighten only very slowly in 23 and 24. They don't even get back to neutral at the end of 2024. So I think in some ways the Fed's own forecast doesn't really uh, hang together. I would think after two years of being below, beyond full employment, uh, you'd have more price pressures and you'd, and you'd have more Fed tightening than what the Federal Reserve has written down in their own forecast. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. So it does seem that you know, we will get this period of where we go through gradual tapering, tapering finishes, middle of next year, but then the outlook becomes increasingly uncertain in terms of interest rate hikes. As you say, the risk is that once the Fed does start hiking, it may have to go faster than financial markets anticipate. Now, that could still leave a window for the next one or two years where the Fed is still dovish and supportive of financial markets, but it could also lead to very abrupt change as well. Now, one thing that some of our clients have been raising, Bill, is that they're looking at the November 2022 midterm elections in the US and wondering whether once that's out of the way, the political calendar is clearer, whether the mm. Fed would become more aggressive if it has to then start raising interest rates. Um, do you think the political calendar really plays that much of a role for the Fed? Because the Fed is, a, as we know, a very independent institution. Uh, my experience is it plays a virtually no role. Uh, the Federal Reserve at the end of the day feels that it needs to conduct monetary policy consistent with the mandate that's given to it by Congress, price stability and full employment. Uh, and the Fed tries to carry that out. I think you know, the only time I think that you know the political cycle comes into play is like the November FOMC meeting when it falls right in front of the election. You know, maybe you're not going to do anything controversial at that particular meeting if the election's a few days later, and that only happens when the calendar lines up in a particular way. So my experience is that the Federal Reserve doesn't let the, the politics drive monetary policy. Um, if it did, I mean, I think that would uh, compromise the Fed's uh, independence and the Fed's credibility and integrity. And so I think that's just not how the Fed thinks about uh, conducting monetary policy. That's, that's great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Bill, for that. And just one quick question on that, though. We've got the U.S. debt ceiling uh, coming up. It needs to be raised as early as possible to allow the Treasury bill to issue new bonds, finance the U.S. government budget deficit. Uh, we did see some Fed policymakers uh, in the last few days, talk about the importance of raising the debt ceiling. Now, do you think that uh, it, uh, the, the Federal, Federal Reserve officials will look at short-term developments like the debt ceiling, or will it be something that Federal Reserve officials assume is going to be raised anyway, and that it shouldn't play too much, shouldn't have too much importance for their longer-term monetary policy stance? Well, this is sort of a binary outcome, right? You either raise the debt limit in a timely way or you don't. And and the, the point where you have to do that is coming relatively soon. Most people think that the, the point of reckoning is sometime between mid-October and early uh, November. So this isn't an issue that's going to hang out you know, for month after month. 
I think the Fed's view is that obviously the debt limit should be raised in a timely way, having even a temporary uh, default on on the, on the on the treasury debt, or 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 paying the treasury debt, but not paying other governmental bills, is not a good place for the U.S. government to be. Uh, nothing is accomplished by it. The debt limit will ultimately have to be raised in any case. So I think the Fed's view is, you know, this is this is this is like crazy, you know, that that this needs to be done in a timely way. You know, we've gone through down this road before. Uh, the debt limit always gets raised. Uh, before you actually get to the point of a, a potential default or a potential, um, you know, uh, not being able to pay your bills on time, I think they will get raised in a timely way. This time, that what's what's more complicated this time is the is the Republicans have said that they're not going to help. So the Democrats have to do all the heavy lifting in terms of, of passing uh, the requisite legislation. I think at the end of the day, they will do what they have to do. But you know, there's always this very small probability of of a of, a, of an accident. Uh, so this is really something that you don't really want to even take even a, even that remote uh, uh, risk. So that's that's why Fed officials are talking about why this needs to be done and needs to be done in a timely way because they're worried about you know what what would happen if if there was a miscalculation if somehow Congress couldn't get the you know legislation passed uh, in a, in, a, in a timely way. But I do expect at the end of the day, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this. Great. Thanks very much, Bill. So I know time's uh, moving on. And uh, so far, we've discussed your views about tapering and then interest rate tightening. We talked about some of the risks as well to the Fed's view and how interest rates could actually rise uh, more quickly than the markets anticipate. You very kindly explained some of the threats we should think about, say, rising inflation expectations, labor market tightness, the debt ceiling got two more questions, Bill, before we finish. Uh, the first is, are there any other risks that you, uh, that you think we should be considering here? I know we haven't talked about the global economy or really the pandemic still or, or China. Is there anything else on your mind at this stage that you think Fed officials themselves will be focusing on as well? Well, I think the, some of the risks that we already talked about, but I think they're worth reiterating. Number one, uh, our inflation expectations are going to become unanchored as, they, as, as, as we get this inflation lasting longer at a higher rate than what we anticipated. We just don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, so far, inflation expectations have moved up a little, not a lot. So I think we have to keep a very close eye on that question. And the second issue, I think, is, which we already talked about, but I think is worth reiterating, is how tight is the U.S. labor market? Do we have as much slack in the U.S. labor market as, 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 as we think we do, given the fact that a whole bunch of people have left the U.S. labor force? Uh, retirements last year went up quite uh, a, a lot. And will those people come back into the labor force once the pandemic uh, hopefully eases? Uh, I just don't think we know at this point. So I think there's just a lot of uncertainty about the outlook. And if we get unlucky and get sort of bad answers on, you know, the amount of labor market slack, the bad answers on in terms of inflation expectations, you know, you could have a much rougher uh, interest rate environment and a more rougher environment for financial assets. Uh, than we, what, what we currently expect. I and mean, we've had a very benign period for financial uh, market performance over the last few years. I mean, if you had sort of suggested that the stock market would do so well as we went through a, you know, a global pandemic, I think most people would be pretty surprised by that. And so we're coming out with, you know, coming out of the pandemic with very low bond yields, very high equity market valuation, very narrow credit spreads. So I think one of the biggest risks here is is that we get a, you know, a, a less pleasant uh, market environment, uh, maybe provoked by uh, not so good news on inflation and maybe not such a friendly Fed. Great. Thanks very much, Bill, for that. Now, I have one final question. And for almost a decade after the financial crisis, as we've mentioned, 
you're a key member of the Fed's senior leadership. From your very long experience, can you tell us where do you think financial market participants tend to get it wrong when they're trying to anticipate changes in the Federal Reserve's monetary policy? I think there's a couple of things that I would highlight. Number one, I think there's this notion that the Federal Reserve knows all this special information that markets don't know. You know, I think there's a lot of expertise in the Fed, so I don't want to, you know, downplay that. But the idea that the Fed really has a sufficient set of information that market participants don't have that allow it to forecast the economy, you know, dramatically better, uh, that the Fed somehow knows what's going to happen before market participants do, I think that's, uh, you know, very much uh, exaggerated. And the second thing I think that people, I think, uh, uh, overestimate is they, is they imagine the Fed is going to respond to very short-lived uh, events. So a lot of questions that you get now is about how is the Federal Reserve going to respond to Evergrande and the problems that the Chinese are having with their property uh, developers. And the answer is they're probably not going to respond at all unless this has a huge consequence for Chinese growth because it would ha- take it would require a fairly significant consequence for Chinese growth to change the dynamics of the U.S. economic recovery. So at the end of the day, yes, they take you know they're aware of these things, they evaluate these kinds of developments that happen from time to time. But the idea that they're just going to stop, you know, the taper because of something that happens abroad, the event ha- the events have to be quite large and they have to be quite persistent to throw the Fed off course. Great. Well, look, Bill, thanks very much for that. That's been really helpful to get your views of the Fed's monetary policy, timeline for tapering, and future interest rate hikes, as well as some of the risks that we should uh, be following. So thanks again, Bill, for your time today. Great to be here. And thanks all of you for joining us for our second investment roundtable. Uh, I've very much enjoyed listening to Bill's insights. I hope you have too. And we look forward to welcoming you to again to future investment roundtables. Thank you again. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.